0: you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to the very first book, the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, this morning. Steve Levy is a pastor in Swansea, Wales, and in one of his books, he tells a story of sitting amongst family and friends at home, watching the movie The Elephant Man one night. Now, if you've ever seen this movie, you know it's a true story of a man who, has, uh, who had uh, horrible uh, physical deformities. And uh, the, the story tells not only of his life, but of a doctor who uh, studied him and his condition and also came to actually uh, befriend this man who felt and was treated as something less than human. And uh, Steve says that uh, as the room's lights were out, Uh, They're all crowded in here watching the sad story. The, The room is filled with emotion. They are about halfway through, he says, when suddenly it wasn't just emotion that was filling the room. It was also the smell of cattle dung and french fries. Now in Wales, french fries are called chips. Here we call them french fries. And he says that it can only mean one thing, that his brother, a farm laborer, was home. Here's what Levy says. Suddenly the lights were on. And the six-foot, three-inch frame was stepping over bodies, offering everybody a chip. Everyone except Dave could sense the atmosphere had now become distinctly tense. But we were all Christians, so we just glared at him. Oblivious to the chaos he was causing, he threw himself down into the chair and said, So, what's this all about then? To which someone replied, Get out. Go on, get out. You can't come in halfway through. Out, out, out. Now, have you ever came in halfway through a movie before? Have you ever come in when a movie has started late in a movie theater, and you're trying to find your seat in the middle of the road, the only one that's left, and you have to walk through 15 people to get at? You know something of the way Steve's brother must have felt, don't you? Very often, uh, in terms of our own study of the Bible, we will see that that it has, like a movie, a, a clear beginning, middle, and an end to which everything is working, but very often we pop in the middle somewhere. And the problem is, we are left uh, asking the same question: What is this all about, then? What is this great story about? Where where are we going? Uh, who are these characters? Now, the past few weeks, we have been looking at the core doctrines of the Christian faith in a series called Vintage Christianity. And so far, we have seen the doctrine of Scripture. We have seen several weeks on the doctrine of God, both His His existence, a God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And this morning, uh, we are beginning to now moving into what is uh, something of a mini-series showing the big picture of the story that God Himself is, uh, is creating and bringing about through the Scriptures and even on into... To our own lives. This morning, we look at the doctrine of creation and God's work in both making all things, as we will see over the coming weeks, His plan to redeem and recreate ultimately all things. And this morning, as we look to the text before us, we will see basically two great truths, both the nature of God and the nature of humanity as we have been created in relationship to God. And what we want to do is see these things not as abstract ideas, not as abstract doctrine, but rather as truths from God's Word that should affect our daily lives, even our time together this morning. So I encourage you as we begin this morning, uh, looking at Genesis chapter 1 on into a few verses of chapter 2, to follow along as I read God's Word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters." Plants yielding seed and fruit bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation. Plants yielding seed according to their own kinds and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be given lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the, great, the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw it was good. And there was evening and morning Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is the word of God. Now frankly, if we sought to unpack every detail of these verses, we would. Uh, this would take up a whole series in and of itself. We could spend several weeks here uh, plunging the depths of Uh, the truths of this text, seeking to understand them and apply them to our lives and drawing connections uh, from here to the rest of the scriptures. Uh, But that's not our intent this morning. Our intent really uh, is to get a a, a larger sense, a kind of bird's eye view of both how God is revealed in this uh, creation account and how we are to understand ourselves as his creation, as his image bearers. And so again, we want to see kind of the basic nature of God and the nature of humanity from this passage. And even here, again, frankly, we're not going to exhaust everything, but rather what we want to do is lay down some foundations uh, for the coming weeks that both look back to some of the previous weeks as well, so that we will begin to see how the God who has made everything is also the same God who has been at work throughout history and even in our lives. So as we begin looking at the nature of God, the first thing that we notice is this, God is sovereign over creation. God is sovereign over creation. In all of the literature, ancient and modern, that is out there, there is nothing, frankly, quite like the Bible. This is especially true in these opening chapters, even the very first verse, which says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it's interesting that even from the outset here, the main character of the Bible is put right in front of our eyes. It is, in fact, God himself. And so it doesn't matter as you continue to read through Genesis and Exodus and on through the rest of the scriptures to the end of the book. Whether you're reading about Abraham or Moses or Gideon or David or Ruth or Isaiah, whether you're reading about any of these people, whether you're reading about Peter or Paul, at the end of the day, the person the book is about is God himself. In the very beginning, there is God. He is the one who simply speaks. As we saw, the universe obeys over and over again. In verse after verse, we read, and God said, and the cosmos comes into existence in obedience to that command. And notice with, along with this, there is not just this kind of, uh, what do we want to say? A mushy creation. It's not as if, Uh, lines of distinction are blurred. It is in fact a very ordered creation account, both in terms of how he brings it into being but also what he does with it after he does bring it into being. God God is very specific in separating light from darkness and separating land from seas and establishing creation to reproduce after its own kind. So you never see a sea turtle laying eggs in which birds sprout and go flying away. No, everything is orderly and taking place uh, according to God's God's sovereign will. God sets the stars in the sky to help people determine seasons and passes of time. In other words, the same constellations that we see, although perhaps uh, slightly tweaked with age of the universe over time, is the exact same constellations that that the very first people would have saw as they gazed up from the Garden of Eden to peer at the night sky. There is a regularity and an order and a, a, a system in which God has created all things. And you know, you wouldn't really necessarily get the same vibe you wouldn't get the same answer if you talked to most scientists today but you know all of the great pioneering scientists men like like Isaac Isaac Newton and and uh, sorry Victor Wooten is a bass uh, jazz guy and I don't know why his name slipped in there Isaac Newton the great scientist you know apple on the head fell off that whole bit Uh, and Galileo all of these men were able to do science because they saw this regularity in this account and their their understanding was God has created things in such a way as we talked about a little bit, the Bible said this morning, you're not going to wake up and the gravity is going to be switched off one morning. You're not, not going to wake up and, and oranges are going to drop from your grapevines. It's just not going to happen. There, there, is a, there is an orderliness, a system, a system in which God has created things so that they could say, you know what? Because things happen the same way all the time, what we can do is actually observe these things, make observations, and turn those observations into predictions about how other things will work in various ways. And so it's somewhat of a mystery today that science would seem to be at such an antagonism towards the Bible. When the Bible is clear, in his sovereignty, God has established creation with such design and such order. Throughout the chapter, as we look at this, his sovereignty is highlighted in all of this, the the power with which he brings forth creation and sustains it. There's no one else there to observe His work to give advice on how his work should go about or to help him in bringing about his work in any way. God stands alone as the eternal one who brings everything else into existence. The sheer power and authority of those creative acts set God apart as the supreme sovereign over all things. It is his acts of creation that are sign both of his limitless power to do all things as well as his authority over all things. So it's one of the most immediate things that jumps out, God's sovereignty over his creation. But the second thing that we need to observe here is that God is distinct from his creation. God is distinct from his creation. The fact that, that this is true, that God is, is separate, distinct from his creation, is an essential belief of Christianity. But you know, frankly, it's something that, that most people don't give a whit about these days. They, they, they wouldn't. If you were to ask, so is God distinct from his creation? They would just say, I don't know, probably not. Uh, well, I was away the other week uh, at a pastor's conference. I picked up this little book by Erwin Lutzer, who some of you will know about, called Oprah Miracles in the New Earth. And it was uh, an interesting little book. I'm about halfway through it. And basically, the whole point of this thing is for. Um, is for Lutzer to, to, to show by way of, of quotations all of the, the crazy beliefs of the authors that Oprah has surrounded herself with and promote through her television program and through her magazines. And so it's people like uh, Eckhart Tolle, who wrote the book The New Earth, and the book The Secret, written by Rhonda Byrne and Helen Schumann, who wrote a book called A Course in Miracles, which uh, Oprah apparently promotes quite vigorously uh, through, her, um, through her media outlets. And what's interesting is that in all of these things, the belief that is being advanced over and over and over again is not that God is distinct from creation, the exact opposite. It's a pantheism. God and creation are the same. That there is no distinction there. It's not uh, God is the creator and we are the creation. No, it's everything all together. So much so that in some of these books, uh, 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 one of the authors says that, that you should wake up in the morning and say to yourself, I am the divine Son of God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. To which I would say, I don't want to get hit by lightning. No, thank you. Nevertheless, there it is. A key centerpiece of this New Age spirituality is the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches, where here we see there is a clear distinction between the Creator and His creation. God is not His creation. He is more than that. He calls it forth into existence apart from Himself, so that God can, as it were, look at creation without looking at Himself, if we can speak that way. At the same time, though, that distinctiveness does not mean He is somehow unconcerned or disconnected from His creation. On the contrary, the third thing that we see is that God relates personally with creation. God relates personally with creation. Look again at verse 27 and following. God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air, and over the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. Now we will explore this in in more detail in a few minutes when we look at the nature of man, but it's important here to see God is relating in a personal way to his creation, specifically to humanity. How do we see that? Well, first of all, he creates humanity in his own image and initiates fellowship with him. He actually comes down and speaks to his image bearers, man and woman. And then he blesses them and he gives them provision. All of those things are, are, not, um, are not the acts of just some, some generic force that cannot be concerned with the mundane realities of life. No, you get the sense in which God is very specifically speaking To the man and to the woman engaging in relationship and ultimately fellowship with them. And as you continue to read through the chapters of the Bible, what you see is that relationship deepening and deepening and deepening. If if I had not been gone uh, last week, uh, we would have heard a sermon. We said, "Skip it now," and that's all right. We'll come back to you later. We would have seen a sermon on this idea of the covenants and how uh, through six critical uh, times and throughout the history of the world, God has said, "I am going to come down, and I am going to have intimate fellowship with one individual, and he is going to be representative of an entire group." And so here it is a covenant with Adam himself. And then we see on in a few chapters, we have a covenant with Noah and we have a covenant with Abraham and then with Moses through all of Israel and then David specifically as one out of Israel. And then all of these covenants finding their final fulfillment in the covenant that God makes with Christ of which we are a part. And all of those things, God is binding himself. He is making promises. He is showing forth love and grace to people. No one can say God is aloof That he is standoffish. No, he is the one that comes after us. He is the one who comes and says, I will be your God and you will be my people. Even when we aren't seeking him. God isn't some cosmic force. He is a personal being. He speaks, he sees, he makes value judgments about what he has made. And he creates us to know him. Not just know about him. God is not to be known as some idea in a dusty book somewhere. We are to actually know the living God personally. And in all of these things, we see that God is, fourthly, good towards his creation. God is good towards his creation. You know, as God is giving um, this uh, this to Moses, as he is telling him what he did, and Moses is, is writing these things down as the author of Genesis, He's not only giving Moses the truth about what has happened, but he's giving it to him in a specific way that would destroy the false beliefs of his day. In other words, uh, God could have worded things differently than he did, but he was very intentional in the specific words and ideas that he is conveying. And in fact, what we would see if we did just a little bit of cultural reading is that this creation story that is given in Genesis 1 is vastly different from the other creation stories that were uh, going on around this time. Some of you, uh, perhaps in high school and college, that may be taking World Lit will have read the story that the Babylonians came up with, the popular myth of their creation account. It was believed that amongst a pantheon of gods, there was one evil um, serpent goddess, Tiamat, and she dominated uh, everything and caused trouble, and yet there was one young god, Marduk, who took her on and literally uh, fought her to the death, and in defeating her, literally ripped the carcass of Tiamat apart, and would take out her entrails and say, oh, I think that'll be this constellation, whoosh, and throws it in there, and would pull out another part of her entrails and say, oh, I think this will be the earth, boom, and this will be uh, humanity, and da 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 you go on, and you just think, oh, man, that is wild, gory stuff, like a piece of an eyeball nerve from this Tiamat thing or whatever? And, what, and look at the contrast that's here. Between, between what the Babylonians have been saying, oh yeah, this is how, this is how we came into existence. And, and, and the Israelites saying, I don't think so, guy. I don't think so. There's no struggle. There's no battle of the gods. There's no good versus evil. There's no catastrophe or chaos. There's a sovereign Lord who speaks and creation obeys. It's not gore and violence. It's goodness. And grace that we see seven times God stands back after what he has created and says and we read God saw that it was good God saw that it was good when we read those words we're not just supposed to look at creation and say oh yeah flower that's good I like that photosynthesis so I have oxygen to breathe I like that that's good no that is good but you're supposed to look at the one who made those things and come to the conclusion he is good If what he produces is good, then the one who made it himself is also good. As we stand back and think about this picture that we see from God as one who creates in such a way that he is sovereign over creation, that he is in all of his uh, pure godness distinct from creation, and yet he is not separate from creation. but Rather, he desires personal relationship with it and that he is good towards it. We stand back and we see all those things and we have this picture of a God who is glorious in His power and goodness, that He's established the world with care and order. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, how should I respond to that kind of God? If that's truly who God is, and that is exactly what He has done and how He has done it, then, then how should I think about those things? How should I live? But in terms of our passage this morning, we can't quite come to that until we know who we are as well and how he has created us. And so we want to look now to the second major thing, which is the nature of humanity and see how it is we are to respond to God. You know, living in the year that we live, 2010, I am almost certain that at some point during this sermon, all of you have thought whether fleetingly or by way of compare or contrast, you have thought about the theory of evolution or about millions of years, haven't you? I mean, it's just there because it's so much, and you don't have to be ashamed of that. It's just that all around us It's pervasive in our culture so that when you hear the creation account, it stands in stark contrast to what the world says. And, you know, it's interesting because today uh, our struggles with, with the creation account, is different than in previous generations. I was telling somebody the other week that, uh, you know, the big problem that Augustine had. You know, St. Augustine, he was a, a leader in, in the church, um, uh well, it was vaguely three to 400 A.D. And he, he, um, he's reading the creation account and he says, six days, why did it take so long? We're talking about God here. I mean, one day. One minute, one second is God. Why does He take six days? So His struggle was, you know, how do I get my mind around why it took God six days? Why did it take Him that long? Why did He choose to do that? Now today, it's the exact opposite, it isn't it? We say, "How did it happen so short?" And 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 we're, we're, we're thinking about all of these, uh, this length of time and these millions of and, and billions of years. And I love the comment that. Um, Legan Duncan, a pastor down in uh, Jackson, Mississippi, he points out from Derek Kidner's commentary, he says this, because Moses tells us the creation of the world takes place in six days, it cuts creation down to size. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, it's this. If you listen and believe and embrace the world's ideas about billions of years and about millions of years, then what does that make humanity? I mean, it's not even a blip big enough to pick up on radar in terms, of, in terms of history of the universe, is it? I mean, literally, we're more or less a cosmic accident with no significance whatsoever. And what's the result of that? Life is meaningless, right? I mean, you trace that out far enough, and you have people like um, uh, Peter Singer in one of our nation's great universities who shortly after 9-11 says, well, you know, uh, because of how we came about, um, it's very difficult for us to say from our perspective that what the terrorists on 9-11 was in any way evil. From their perspective, it was good. And so how can we make a value judgment on that? I ask the families of those that passed away that day whether or not that act was evil. But the reality is, if you don't have some framework for creation and why we're here, that's the logical conclusion. And yet when God says, hey, the universe has only been around a short amount of time because I made everything in six days, and humanity came at the end of that as the pinnacle of it, suddenly there's a significance to life. There is meaning and value inherent in not just life in general, but specifically human life. We can no longer say man is nothing. No, man is something, and he's something unique. There's a couple of things that our passage says, three truths. The first truth is this, humanity is a reflection of God. Humanity is a reflection of God. Listen to verses 26 to 27 again. God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created Created them. Notice that it says God wanted to make man in his image and after his likeness. Both of these phrases work together to describe humanity. In other words, it's not two separate things. It's not image and likeness. No, both of these things are describing the same thing just in two different ways. The word image means to cut or to carve out. It is something, if you were to make uh, an image of someone from a piece of wood, you would take a knife and you would literally carve it out of, uh, of, uh, uh, into their likeness. Uh, and this word likeness comes from the verb to be like. And so basically what you have is God saying we want in some way for God to resemble us and to be like us. So what does that mean? I mean, what does all of that mean? Well, the Bible, frankly, never gives us a full explanation. It never lays out the totality of what that is supposed to mean. But it does give us the basics. As God's image bearers, we are to be like God. and In fact, we are like God in that he is a moral, rational, spiritual, and relational being. And so are we. That is exactly who we are or what we are as well. We are able to, to relate to people, to make value judgments, to engage in spiritual life with God himself. Nothing else in creation can do that. The trees can't do that. The plants can't do that. The animals can't do that. Even if we only have this passage and not the rest of the Bible, it's clear also that man is the pinnacle of God's creation as the image of God. Did you notice comparatively how much time is spent talking about the creation of man compared to everything else? It's a lot. Why? Because God is doing something unique here. He is setting us apart from the rest of creation. We are in a class by ourself. You know, when I was in high school, we used to talk about the human animal. Well, that language is nonsense to the biblical viewpoint. No, there's animals and there's humanity. We may share some basic biological functions, but the imprint of God's image in our life means there is a difference between us and everyone else. What does that mean? Well, it means this. At the very least, there is inherent worth in every human being. We didn't come from primordial soup. We aren't descended from apes. We were created by God and His image. Again, in high school, I remember talking with the professor, and he said, you know, there's some people that have such a view of life that if they had to swerve in the road, to hit a cockroach or a baby. They wouldn't know what decision to make because life is the same. It's all valuable. To which I say, that's not what the Bible says. (laughs) I can run over the cockroach a thousand times over because the baby is an image bearer of God. And frankly, it doesn't matter whether it's not yet born or near death's door, whether it's a super athlete athlete, or someone who has a disability, whether it's an important politician or one incapable of contributing anything to society. Every person has worth in God's image. That's the implication of being his image bearer. But more than that, as being made in God's image, we are also responsible to God. Humanity is responsible to God. Notice what he says let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and of the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God blessed them and God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Humanity was tasked, with having dominion over the animals as well as the earth itself. As God's image bearers, God has made us to be stewards over his creation. That means in part, as human beings, we have a mandate to work. Now, I know that's not something that most of, most of you want to hear. Okay, but you have a mandate to work. And, and, and uh, actually, next week, we're going to look at sin and the curse, and you're going to say, oh, no, the work is a result of the fall. Well, no, it's not, unfortunately. It comes before that. In fact, you know, uh, working in a, in a factory when I was in, uh, in, in college, one of the things I heard over and over again was people saying, you know, basically their, their, their goal was to get a desk job. And if they couldn't get a desk job, then to work so much overtime they could re- retire early so they could just sit around and do nothing. That was the vision of the good life. Well, the problem is the Bible does not endorse that at all. The, the, retirement? If you have osteoporosis and your bones don't work anymore, maybe. Then your kids get to help take care of you. But, and don't get me wrong, you're not going to work at 70 the same way you work at 30. There is certainly a level of, of, of going down, you know. But particularly for, for Christian people, there's no such thing as retirement. Yeah, you may, you may start getting a paycheck from a company that you no longer work for, but you know what that means? That means you get to spend more time with God's people making meals and delivering them or picking up someone and bringing them to church or writing out thank you notes and and goodbye cards and telling people that you're praying for them. There's always work to be done. There is, in fact, a glory in work to be done. I'll I'll be honest, I would much rather be uh, swimming in this book during the week, thinking about it, praying about it, studying it out, writing out the sermon, than mowing my lawn. I, I lived in an apartment almost my whole life, and the short time I lived in, in a house, uh, I was too young to mow the lawn, so we, we buy this house, and one is like, okay, we got to buy a lawn, but mow the lawn. It's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Who mows the lawn? The, the guy on the big you know, tractor comes through and mows everybody's lawn. What are you talking about? She's like, no, you know. So, oh, man. Well, I didn't have to mow it. We didn't have a lawn. We had to actually plant the lawn first. But can I tell you something? As much as in the midst of doing that, I, I frankly kind of despise it, When you're done and you stand back and you see that grass is even and you weed whacked all the edges and everything looks nice, you kind of sit back and say, look at that. It actually looks nice. There's a sense of accomplishment there. And guess what? God put that there in you. Work is not inherently bad. It is good. There is a glory to it. At the same time, what kind of work are we to do? Part of the work that we are to do is to make use of the natural resources of our planet, but not to do so in a way that would be abusive to them. So, for instance, if you need to borrow my computer for something, I said, sure, here you go. If, and, and, and you brought it back in a week. And I, I, I lift up the screen, and the, the screen just falls out. And I look at it, and I go to put a disc in, and the, and the disc drive player just, boom, just shoots out. And I pick it up, and the keys, I'm thinking, what did you do to this thing? I mean, would you have been a responsible steward of the gift that I lent you for your work? No way, right? So you look outside the window, and don't look too long because you get distracted, but you look outside the window, what do you see? You see a huge globe, and you see a massive planet of resources, of animals, and birds, and, and oil that we pull up from the ground, and all those things God says, feel free, have at it. Fill this earth, populate it, subdue it, take dominion, because you are my image, you are representing me on this earth. At the same time, you need to steward the resources that you have. So if we're to bring that into a contemporary context, okay, and this is no white, no, in no means meant to be political per se, but just as the spokesperson, Al Gore's on the wrong side of things. Okay? At the same time, the guy says over here that says, sure, let's go ahead and let's just do nuclear testing all over the place and burn up the atmosphere, that's on the wrong side too. And so somewhere in the middle you have, for instance, BP saying, yeah, it's fine to pull the oil up out of the ground but it's wrong to do it in such a way that disaster happens and you, and you ruin the beaches and kill off animals. That's irresponsible. Responsible using the resources we have. Irresponsible doing it in a way that does damage to the gift that God has given to us. And so this is the balance that we stand in as God's people. Yes, we are into creation care, but not creation love. We don't live in avatar world, people, okay? I know you may I may look nice on the screen, but that's not us. We don't we we, we don't lovingly say, "Oh, but you please let me have your life and gently slit straight throat." It, nah, you pull your gun and you shoot it and you eat it that night. That's that's what God gave it to us for, okay? But at the same time, you don't torture it. You wouldn't string the thing up and hear it squeal and squawk and scream as you poke it. Up. No, no, no. You shoot it and you're done with it, okay? It is, it is a, it's a, it's a, it's a gracious thing that God has given to us to have dominion over this world and to give us its vast resources. But we don't trash it in the midst of using it. And, and, and in all this political talk and everything else, you've got voices yelling on, on, on different things. And don't be swayed away from the Christian worldview. Yes, there is an extreme to creation love where we're almost pantheist again, like Oprah in the New Age, worshiping every little thing that's out there. No, we don't take it that far, but we do say the same God who created us and gave us life, he created what's right outside our front door. And we better take care of it and be responsible with it because that is what God has tasked us to do. As those who reflect God, as those who are responsible before God as his image bearers, then lastly, humanity should revere God. Humanity should revere God. God creates all things, even creating man in his own image. What should our response be? More than anything else, it should drive us to give him the worship of our lives. Listen to a couple of, of passages and listen to why the individual talking is worshiping God. And Psalm 8, David says, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth! You have set your glory above the heavens. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish in the the of the sea. Whatever oh passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. God, I see the creation that you have done and the dominion you have given to man, and I give you praise. Psalm 95, that's on the front of your worship guide that we read this morning. Oh, come and let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, who our Maker for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. You can't escape it, even in heaven. The apostle John has given a vision in Revelation 4, and you know what he sees? People singing in the throne room of God. Worthy are you, our Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Romans 1, Paul is so clear that when we look at what God has done, we are to have the response of immediate, lifelong, complete, loving, joyful worship of him. We acknowledge him that he is the creator. We trust that he is a good God who desires to bless his people. We serve him, fulfilling our role as image bearers. That's the response that we are to have. Now as we end, frankly, it would be easy to end right there to close up the book, to say our prayer, and to walk out happy. But there's a problem, isn't there? We see this picture that's given in Genesis 1 and 2, and we look out the window and we say, that's not our world. Something has changed. Something's different. There is death. There is disease. There are babies that are born without eyeballs and die. There are old people that get struck down by cars. There are pastors of large churches who encourage lots of people who get brain tumors and die in the midst of their ministry. And you're asking, what in the world is wrong? This does not look good to me. God, what happened? And the answer that we'll see next week is, we happened. We came in and instead of trusting God, instead of believing that He was the good and sovereign King, we sinned and we rebelled. We are the ones who brought death, disease, and violence into this world that now permeate our existence. Our rebellion led to the curse of upon all things, even still. Even still, the God who was gracious in creating all things, who was gracious in making man in His image, is still gracious in planning and achieving a rescue mission, not just for His people, but for all of creation, through His Son, Jesus Christ. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh, yet without sin. He came to be the second Adam. He came to be the new start of a new living race who lived perfectly. And in fact, in that perfection, died in the place of those who were not perfect, died in the place of sinners so that we could be brought to God. And Jesus Christ did not stay dead; it was raised back to life. And as the, is now the focus of that worship that we are to give God. So this morning, as being now, God's image bearers, not just in creation, but on this side of the fall, on this side of the cross. Our response to these things is to to affirm the lordship of Jesus Christ, to trust in him for salvation from our sins, from the calamity that we have brought upon ourselves by our disobedience. Trusting that he did die to save us from God's wrath and to provide us, along with the rest of creation, the future of being recreated into the glorious image of God. And as we wait for that recreation, we worship Him in a way that is loving, faithful, and desires to serve Him alone. That is our response this morning. May it be so of our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is our earnest desire that we would live in light of the message that we have heard this morning from Your Word. The Father, we would not simply have heard it, but we would walk away changed by it. God, we pray that you would do this in our hearts because only you can do it. Our hearts are sinful. And Father, we need your spirit to, to change us so that we can live in light of the truth of what you've done for us in Jesus Christ. Father, as both our creator and our savior, may that be so of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.